This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, a few weeks ago, we began a new series um, in the Gospel of Luke called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And we are, we're walking through Luke's Gospel. We're especially focusing in this series on passages that are unique to the Gospel of Luke that are not found in the other three Gospels. And there are a couple of, of classic parables, probably the two most famous Parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, are both found only in Luke. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, and we're going to ask uh, the question from chapter 10 How's your love life? Love is in the air this week. And uh, I had a wonderful uh, date with my sweetheart on uh, on friday night and some of us are doing that this weekend or maybe you'll do that um this week there's a spouse or a significant other um in your your life but i hope that you will we we think of this week as being about romantic love but we're gonna we're gonna take that in a in a different direction today because the parable of the compassionate samaritan is all about love how is your love life in the sense that that jesus has called you to be as his follower a person of compassion and love is your love dial running low is there a deficit of compassion in you Let's take a look at it this morning. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 25 through 37 this morning um, at a parable that literally added a vocabulary word to the English language. Even secular people who don't know this parable know what a Samaritan is in our culture. And sometimes as believers, we can miss part of what that means. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's begin with verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. He said to him, Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we, as we dig into this text today, Lord, we, we pray um, that you would show us uh, new treasures, new jewels 
from, the, from your word. That's a beautiful thing about your word. It's just inexhaustible. We, 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 we find treasure and then just we keep finding more as we keep studying and digging throughout the course of our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would emerge today not just knowing more, but, but more ready to be your people, walking in love in a world that so desperately needs your love, walking through life each day looking for opportunities to show your love and your compassion. Lord, as, as you have shown it to us, and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper later in this service, Lord, we, we are mindful of the fact that, that you showed us your grace and your love and your mercy, your compassion, um, not only when we didn't deserve it, but when we were your enemies, you came and, and rescued us, rescued us when we were perishing. And so, Lord, speak to us now by the power of your spirit and prepare our hearts to come to the table. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, this week, someone stopped me and asked me for directions, and I knew exactly where the guy wanted to go. I knew the street, but the thing is, I go there so often that I don't pay attention to signs anymore. I don't need the signs. I can just go right past them. I don't pay any attention to the, those details because I kind of know where that is. And so I was trying to help him and describe, but it was hard because like, I didn't know how many streets you pass by before you get to that street. I just kind of do it and take it for granted. That can happen to us with familiar passages of scripture like this parable because we assume we know what there is to know about it but I want you to know there's no part of the Bible that is like that the Bible is written to be studied and dug into over and over and over throughout the whole course of our lives and it is like a gold mine that just continues to yield nuggets of gold the more that we dig. We keep digging and we keep finding more nuggets of gold. I saw things in this parable this week that I had never seen before. And a few years from now, if I'm studying to preach it again, I'll see even more. That's the way it works. You keep digging. You keep getting gold, treasure. So let's dig into it afresh and anew today. What do we see here? How is, the, how is this text structured? Well, first of all, we see some initial questions and answers that lead into this parable. And we see that in verses 25 through 29. Let's look at verse 25, first of all. It gives us the setting. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So who is asking Jesus this question? Luke describes him as an expert in the law. Your translation may say a lawyer, but not an attorney like we think of attorneys today. This is an expert in, in the religious law. And probably he also was a priest. That's one of the new things I saw this week is that these experts in the law, when they weren't, typically they were priests, and when they weren't performing their priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem, they would function as kind of you know, experts in, in, the, in the Jewish law. Now, that's important because one of the characters that emerges in the parable is what? A priest, which this guy probably, probably was, in addition to being uh, an expert in, in the religious law. So it says here in verse 25 that he stood up to test Jesus. Now, standing up was a, a, a normal thing to do. It was a sign of respect for a teacher or a rabbi, for the student to stand and ask a, a question. But we see here that although he's sort of feigning respect 
for Jesus in standing to ask the question, he is not standing up um, in a posture with humility in his heart to learn from Jesus. No, he's standing up because he wants to test Jesus. And so he asks this question and then Jesus, as he so often did, responds to the question with a question. We see it in verse 26. Jesus says, what is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? Now see, Jesus is not being defensive at all, but Jesus knows that this guy is an expert in the written law, so he's giving him the opportunity to speak into this. How do you see it? What does God's word say? How do you read it? And he responds in verse 27. And he responds by quoting two verses from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And both of them, both commands are about love. He answered, verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love your neighbor. Verse 28, Jesus says, you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. Now, I have changed in my interpretation of this parable through the years. I used to lean toward the view that Jesus was sort of like posing a hypothetical here. You know, as if, yeah, do this and you will live. Yeah, go love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do that, you know, perfectly um, and never sin, you know, and you will live. I don't think that's what's actually happening here. Um, because to love God and to love your neighbor, those are things that flow from faith. And we know that we're saved by faith. We saw it last week. What does Jesus tell the woman in, 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 in chapter 7 and verse 50? Your faith has saved you. Go in, go in peace, right? So we're saved by, by faith. But um, I don't see his answer here um, as being opposed to that because to love God and to love your neighbor is something that would flow from faith in God. So I don't think Jesus is sort of, you know, posing some kind of a false um, um, hypothetical here. No, I think that he's actually affirming the answer that this guy is giving. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, that could have been the end of the exchange. <laughs> you know, he could have just sat down, <laughs> quit while you're ahead, <laughs> you know. But remember, he has an agenda. <laughs> and so he's like the guy at the meeting who just, he's got to have the last word, you know. It's about, the meeting's about to end. <laughs> and somebody stands up and just blurts out something um, that's going to end up being embarrassing to them. But in the providence of God, um, had he just sat back down, we would not have this parable. And God wanted us to have this parable. We need this parable. So here's the way that, um, that, uh, that Jesus responds to it. Verse, verse 29. Um, the, the man says, he says, it says, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, lurking behind this is the fact that Jesus has been reaching out to all of these outsiders. He's, he's reaching out to Gentiles, in chapter 9, he, go, he enters, he goes and ministers in a Samaritan village, very important for what's coming next. And so it's becoming widely known. 
Jesus is reaching out to people that we typically have nothing to do with. And so he's trying to probably smoke Jesus out, you know, as some kind of a heretic for doing that. What's going to actually happen is that Jesus is going to kind of smoke him out and people who think like that as people who are not obeying the, the law of, 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 of God. But see, the question here, um, who is my neighbor? Most of the people there would not have viewed that question as out of line. You know, because, you know, in, in there, in, in the popular Nash, Jewish nationalism of the day, there were non-neighbors. <laughs> there were people that you, you did not have to help and love. Non-neighbors. Now what Jesus is going to do is to subvert that entire worldview and blow it to smithereens. And he does that by use of a parable. So let's look at the parable that we see in verses 30 30 and following. Look at verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, this scenario was not unrealistic. People knew this road. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles long, and it was notorious for this kind of, of violent crime. It was jagged, lots of rocks and caves. It was ideal for people just to pop out. If you're for Star Wars fans, if you remember the first Star Wars movie where uh, Luke Skywalker is attacked by the sand people in the desert, you know, and they come out from a cave and a rock, it, it, it would have looked very much like that. It was an ideal setting, which is why it was frequented by these uh, bandits. And they would just pop out and assault someone out of nowhere. Very realistic scenario. And in this case, it's so bad they literally stripped the clothes right off, of, right off his back um, and they leave him half dead. He is, he, is, he is fighting for his life and he will die unless help comes. Well, here comes the first possibility for that. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down that road. Now remember, <laughs> Probably what the guy is that stood up to ask the question, right? He's a man of God. He's supposed to be in touch with God. He's in charge of administering the sacrifices in the temple. A priest was, happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He not only does not stop, but he actually swerves, swerves to the other side of the road. I, I think I probably do that in airports and stuff when, you know, there are people trying to uh, pass out something political or sell something or whatever. I think probably my steps sort of veer, you know, veer, veer a little bit away. I, just, I don't want to want to engage with that. So, you know, he, he, out of the corner, of his eye, he sees there's this, this figure over here and he swerves to the other side of the road. I'm just gonna get around this as quickly as possible. Now, all kinds of excuses have been made for this guy. One would be that he was afraid of touching a dead body and becoming ceremonially unclean because perhaps you know he was on his way to Jerusalem to perform his priestly duties, which he couldn't do if he was ceremonially unclean. Well, we've already seen in Luke by now that compassion trumps that, right? But you know, even if that were the case, even if he was on his way to Jerusalem, um, that he, he would, he, you know, God's compassion would dictate that you stop and help. That would overrule, you know, the, the minutia of the, of the law. 
But the text indicates here, he's not on his way to Jerusalem. He's done with his priestly duties in Jerusalem. He's going back down to Jericho. You see that word here in verse 31, that he's going down that road? When you go down that road, that 17-mile road between Jerusalem and Jericho, you are going down. I've been down that road. There's a modern highway that parallels that road. If you visit Israel, you will almost cert- your bus will almost certainly go down it. And so the ancient road parallels that, that road. It's 3,300 feet down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a steep drop. So he's going down. He's done in Jerusalem. He's headed down to Jericho. He's finished serving God in the temple. And now he just passes right on by. A more likely reason for passing by, other than just kind of lack of compassion, would be fear. Fear. Because he sees what's happened. This is obviously the victim of a violent crime. Well, the people who did it could still be lurking in the shadows. I don't want to take a chance. That's the thing about love. It often involves sacrifice and risk. He's not into that. Let's get out of here as quickly as we can. Now the second possibility for help comes along in verse 32. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, Levites were like assistants to the priest in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, you know, but the same thing, same result. You know, you've heard of Julius Caesar says, I came, I saw, I conquered. <laughs> These guys, they came, they saw, they swerved. <laughs> Let's get out of there. Now, there were many popular stories that circulated around this time in this culture in which, you know, clergy types like the priest and the Levite would serve as kind of like foils for the heroic Jewish layperson who would emerge in the story. (laughs) And so most of the people listening probably think that's where Jesus is going. Ah, you know, the priest and the Levite, all these clergy guys, they pass by, but, you know, the pious Jewish farmer or construction worker stops to help. That's probably what, where they think Jesus is going. But in the parables, remember, there's always this moment where Jesus just turns things in a direction that is completely unexpected. Jaws drop. Eyes bug out because Jesus has turned things where they did not expect. And that moment comes right here in verse 33. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now, (laughs) when he says that... (laughs) To this Jewish crowd, not only are jaws dropping and eyes bugging out, but faces are becoming red with anger. Because I can assure you, in their eyes, good Samaritan was an oxymoron. Samaritans weren't good, the good people. They were the bad people. And the eyes of the people that were hearing this parable... It was, it, was, uh, it was racial, part racial, part religious. The Samaritans were people that had, uh, had stayed in the promised land during the Jewish exile. And so while they stayed in the promised land, they had intermarried you know, with, uh, with foreigners in the land. So they were considered as, as uh, half-breeds and their worship was different and all of that. So there's a racial aspect to this, a religious aspect, an ethnic aspect to this. It was a mutual hatred. The Jews and Samaritans hated one another, had nothing to do with one another. 
And so when he says this, this crowd is boiling. They are seething with anger when he, when he says this, this, to this to this Jewish audience. Well, he's not done. <laughs> He's far from done. Verses 34 and 35. He, he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Now, notice the comprehensiveness of his actions here. What does he do? It says, verse 34, he went over to him. He moves toward the wounded man, and the others had moved away from him. He bandaged his wounds, probably stripping off some of his own clothes to do that. He poured on olive oil and wine, which would indicate a person of means. This guy's probably a merchant going along the, the road. He has more to lose. He has more to be robbed of. He's risking even more. Then he put him on his own animal, which means he had to walk. And then he takes him to the end and personally cares for him. And then the, the next day, he makes this open-ended financial arrangement with the innkeeper and just says, whatever it takes, I've got it. Now, what was it that motivated him to do this? And Jesus tells us in verse 33, look at it. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and here it is. When he saw the man, he had compassion. When he saw the man, he had compassion. Now, I want you to hold that phrase, and let's turn back to chapter 7, where we were a few weeks ago. And let's look once again at the incident when Jesus has compassion on the widow whose only son has died. And Jesus raises her son from the dead. But when he sees this, he sees this poor widow walking out of the town of Nain, and he recognizes what's going on, that she's lost her only son. What does it say of Jesus in verse 13 here. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion. Same phrase. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, interestingly, and not by coincidence, and we didn't have time to cover this when I preached on this text, but we've talked about it now. This is the first use of the term Lord that Luke has for Jesus in, in Luke. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion. Now, in the Old Testament, when we see the characteristics of who the Lord is, What's the first characteristic that we see? Exodus 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a, what? Compassionate and gracious God. This is who God is. This is who the Lord is. And then at the end of that, after Jesus raises the young man from the dead and compassionately gives him back to his mother, what do the crowd say? God has visited his people. Because this is who God is. He's a God of compassion. And he's calling us as his people to be people of compassion.
Verses 36 and 37, going back to the parable. Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Now, do you see how Jesus shifts the focus here? How did this exchange begin? It began with the question, who is my neighbor? Because he wanted to narrow down the definition of neighbor, right? That was his agenda. That's the man's agenda. Narrow the definition of neighbor so that there are some human beings in the world who are just non-neighbors. We don't have to love them. Jesus is shifting the entire focus of this. It begins with the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus is forcing a different question. Am I a neighbor? Very different. That's the question for us. Am I a neighbor? Do I meet the biblical definition of neighbor? Let's look at some takeaways here for our lives today. If you're taking notes, the first one would be this. Saving faith expresses itself in love for God and neighbor. Saving faith expresses itself in love for God and neighbor. Now we love Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and we should love it. It's a precious part of God's word. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one may boast. But then for some reason, we don't quote verse 10. (laughs) We leave off verse 10. Why do we do that? What does verse 10 say? It's part of the same flow of thought. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so, genuine, saving faith results in fruit, in works, in works of love, because when we have genuine saving faith, we get the Holy Spirit. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, says that the fruit of the Spirit is what? First of all, love. Colossians 3, 14 says, above all, put on love. Saving faith expresses itself in love for God and neighbor. Listen, Luther, who we associate, you know, with the doctrine of being saved by grace alone through faith alone, Luther said this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. (laughs) Faith without works is dead. If it's genuine saving faith, it is going to be followed by works just as surely as day follows night. Works of love. Faith expresses itself in love. Galatians 5 and verse 6. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Here's the second takeaway for us love is something you do, not just feel. Love is something you do, not just feel. Notice the bookends of this text in verses 25 and 37. In verse 25, the guy asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 37, Jesus says, go and do the same. What about in between those two bookends? Look at verse 28. 
Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Look at verses 34 and 35. It is a series of things that he does. Yes, he feels compassion in verse 33, but then it is accompanied by action. He moves toward the injured man. He bandages his wounds. He pours on oil and wine. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him to the inn and takes care of him and then gives, makes these financial arrangements for his care. It's, it's a feeling accompanied by action. I love what Daryl Bach says about this. Bach says, love that comes from the heart responds with the hands. Love that comes from the heart responds with the hands. It's not just sentiment. Here's the third takeaway. Your neighbor is anyone in need. Your neighbor is anyone in need. Not just people who look like you, not just people who think like you, not just people who live in the same nation as you. Your neighbor is anyone in need. Notice how Jesus frames this as he begins telling this parable in verse 30. I never saw it like this until this week. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. A man! Not a Jewish man, not a Gentile man. There's no, it is an anonymous man. A man! A human being. That's the point. He doesn't elaborate anymore. He doesn't need to. This is a human being created in the image of God who is in need. Religion doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. None of that matters. And then Jesus ups the ante because the one who proved to be the neighbor was the very person that this crowd regarded as an enemy. And what are the implications of that? We're called to be neighbors and to love our enemies. Jesus says in, in Luke 6.32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Chapter 6 and verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good for those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, in a culture where people are dividing and lobbing bombs at others, you know, whether literal bombs or bombs on social media or whatever, as Jesus followers, instead of being sucked into that culture, we are called to be a countercultural people of love, radical love. Christians are to practice radical love because we know that we have been radically loved. Ephesians 5. And verses one and two says, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. I love that phrase, walk in love. This is our daily life. To walk in love means that you walk through life with a sensitivity to the needs of people around you. We tend to, you know, from this parable, a lot of times we, we tend to make the application, you know, that just, well, you know, are you gonna be the one who stops on the side of the road and helps the person whose car is fixed? Let me tell you, nobody would want me under the hood of their car. Not the one for that. Assuming they have a cell phone, but, you know, there may be opportunities to stop 
on the long side of the road. Melissa and I were in a situation one time uh, early in our marriage, and you know we were on our way to a doctor's appointment, and she was pregnant, and you know, and we were in a, the Monitor Merrimack Tunnel, and uh, on, it was a, it, anyway. Someone stopped and helped us. Yes, so that yeah, that's an application in certain situations, but we need to be spirit led in these situations, and, and you know, we, we're, we, we can't help every person that we pass by. We have all been in the situation, you know, in our city or in, 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 in larger cities uh, where we pass by, we have to walk, we walk past people who are, you know, who, who are homeless or, or whatever, and we feel, you know, we, we feel that certain tension because we, you know, as believers, we, we want to help. We don't, don't, don't know how to help. It's sometimes not just good to give money. Things. There, there's a whole, I understand. There are complexities to this, okay? But, it, and, but the, we need to understand that the application to this, yes, it can be someone in physical need. It, it might be that. And if, you're walk, if, if we're walking in love and we're walking in the Spirit, then yes, let's be, let's be open to the prompting of the Spirit, you know, to, to maybe intervene in a physical situation where someone is, is, is in an obvious physical need and distress and, and, and we're in the position where we can stop and try to help and, and love, yes. But the applications to this are broader and the needs are not just physical. We're, 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 we're in conversation with people every day that may be suffering emotionally. There's, a, there's an emotional need, there's a hurt there's a spiritual need. And in order to reach out in love, it's gonna require us to slow down and get outside of ourselves and maybe way outside of our comfort zone and seek to enter into their experience and the pain that they are going through. And then there's a very practical part of this. You know, walking in love Means that, it means that you start in the most practical ways with the people that are right around you. Your spouse, your children, your parents, the people that you work with, the people that you encounter in the grocery store or whoever. Walk in love. It means that we're looking for opportunities to love, to bless, to help. It may be an action, it may be a word, it, look, we're, we're, we're also walking in the Spirit, right? So that the Spirit, the Spirit will show you, right? What needs to be done, what needs to be said. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in love. Why? Because we have been radically loved. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. Why? As Christ as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. We're to practice radical love because we know that we've been radically loved. This is what the Lord's Supper is about. It is a reminder that you are radically loved. You're radically loved when you did not deserve that love, when we, when we were his enemies, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. You know, in church history, there have been some wild interpretations of this parable. <laughs> um, you know, I love, and, the, and the, church, the church fathers tended to allegorize the parables. And um, Augustine did that. I love Augustine. His Confessions is one of, a book that really impacted me. And I commend it to you. Um, but Augustine, like the other church fathers, they, 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 they looked for, they tended to allegorize the parables. That led to some wild interpretations. So, like, Augustine, with this parable, um, sees the, the man that fell among robbers as Adam, who fell into sin. <laughs> and um, the, the priest and the Levite are the law and the prophets that cannot save. And the inn is the church where healing can happen. And the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. I can promise you that's not what Jesus meant when he told this story. But Augustine had one thing right in his interpretation of this parable. And that is that that Samaritan 
is like Christ. He was all about compassion. And when we were beaten, and not just half dead, but dead, dead in sin on the side of the road, he moved toward us. In fact, he came from heaven to earth to rescue us, to care for us. But here's where that analogy breaks down. Because unlike the Samaritan, Jesus himself allows himself, it allows himself to be beaten. Not just within an inch of his life, but he allows himself to be taken and beaten and killed. And dies on a cross so that we can live and experience the freedom of life. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the meaning of it. Every time that we take it, it brings back in just a graphic, visual way how we have been loved by Christ who came to rescue us when we were his enemies, who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together as we prepare to come to the table. And so Lord, as we, as we prepare as, as believers to take part in the supper that, that you ordain, we do this knowing that none of us is worthy. This is not a matter of us measuring up or making ourselves worthy. We know we, we can never measure up. We know that only one lived the, the perfectly righteous, sinless life that we could never live and who died the death we should have died for our sins on the cross. And so, as we sung earlier, we, we are all on level ground beneath the cross of Jesus. As brothers and sisters in Christ, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we know that we are all merely sinners saved by your grace. You know, as we think about that, listen, we would say to you, you may be here in this room, you may be, you know, watching a stream today or Maybe it's at a point in the, in the future, but do you know Christ as your Savior and Lord? He loves you. He gave himself for you. He died for sinners like you and me on the cross. He rose from the dead that we can have eternal life. Turn to Jesus and trust him now. Welcome him into your life as your Savior and Lord and King But for those of us who, who are followers of Christ, as we prepare to come to the table, this is a time for us to meditate on what Jesus has done for us. His undeserved love and grace in our lives. And what are the implications of that for us in the way that we live? Who are, you, who are we going to show mercy to this week? Are we going to walk in love? Are we going to walk with our eyes open, looking for opportunities to love and to meet needs because we have been on the receiving end of that kind of love? Are we cherishing unforgiveness in our lives toward others? Jesus loved us when we were enemies. Are there things that we need to deal with? Unconfessed sin. Spend a few moments just in quietness before the Lord. Lord, how we thank you for uh, your love. How we thank you for the, 
the shed blood and the, the broken body of our Lord that we could be forgiven and, and made whole and given new life and eternal life. What amazing grace we have received in, in you. And Lord, as we, as we take the elements now, Lord, may, may it be a visual reminder to, uh, of the centrality of the cross, centrality of the, of the gospel. Lord, make us a gospel people. Deepen our love for you, our love for others. We ask in the name of Christ. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.